That is from Church on the Move, a great church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Very creative people. And you know what? When I saw that, I thought, we've got creative enough people to do that very same thing right here. So maybe next year we do our own deal. We're in the uh, last week of a, a three-week series on breaking free. We've already talked about breaking free of the past and breaking free of addiction. This morning, I want to start out down a little bit of a different road. I, I want to show you, if you go to the next slide, guys, the seven, uh, seven of the most poisonous things on earth. Okay? So follow along with me here. First one is the, uh, these are in no particular order, box jellyfish. Uh, a box jellyfish venom has killed 5,567 people since 1954. Uh, its toxins attack the heart, the nervous system, the skin cells. The venom is so overpoweringly painful that most human victims go into shock, drown, and die of heart failure before even reaching shore. Uh, and if you um, uh, survive, you can experience weeks of pain after contact with the box jellies. How about the next one? Yeah, good old no-shoulders, Satan's hand puppet, the king cobra, the world's most venomous snake. Now, the black mamba does have more powerful venom, but the king cobra has five times more venom, and uh, um, it can grow up to 18 and a half feet long, and this snake can kill an, a full-grown Asian elephant with a bite. The marble cone snail. Pretty, but don't pick it up. One drop of its venom is so powerful it can kill 20 people. Uh, it the contact with it causes intense pain, swelling, numbness, tingling, then muscle paralysis, vision changes, and breathing failure. There is no anti-venom. How, how about in the plant world? Oleander, considered by most people to be the most poisonous plant in the world. It, it, it's, it, the poison in oleander is so strong that it can poison a person who eats honey made by a bee who has ingested oleander nectar. Uh, ingestion uh, results in diarrhea, vomiting, intense stomach pain, uh, dizziness, irregular heartbeat, and death. If a patient survives 24 hours after ingestion, their chances of survival go up, uh, but treatment includes induced vomiting, stomach pumping, and eating activated charcoal. Next one, water hemlock. It, causes, it contains a poison called secutoxin. Toxin. And, and those who, for those who ingest it, the onset of uh, illness is almost instantaneous. It causes violent, painful convulsions, nausea, vomiting, cramps, and muscle tremors. It, the, the few who survive contact with it have long-term health problems, including amnesia. So at least you would have forgot that you ever ate it. The rosary pea is a pretty little seed. They're red on the bottom, black on top. They're often used to make jewelry, including rosaries for use in, in Catholic prayer rituals. Um, but there are many recorded cases of jewelers dying when they would prick their fingers while handling these peas. It contains a poison called abrin. If you remember the ricin poison scare from a few years ago, abrin is a thousand times more poisonous than ricin. Three micrograms can kill a human being. If it's inhaled, the results are difficulty breathing, fever, nausea, and fluid in the lungs. If it's ingested, 
It can cause severe nausea and vomiting, which leads to dehydration and ends with kidney, liver, and spleen failure. But the worst part is death can take four days to come. And here's number seven. of the most poisonous things on earth. Religion is poison. It's poison. It's poison because it tells us that God is upset and angry with us. That He's looking for ways and reasons to punish us. Religion says, oh yes, God loves you, but that love is conditional. And it depends on whether or not you can please Him, appease Him. Religion is poison because it tells us that our human performance somehow gains us a higher standard with God or higher standing with Him. Religion says, religion always boils down to six words, do more, try harder, be better. Do more, try harder, be better, and then maybe God will accept you. Maybe. Religion is poison because it's, disp- it's dispensed by people who are eager for us to let them fix us, cure us. See, religion says you can't please God until you first please me. Religion is poison because it, it tells us that the degree to which God loves us is up to us. And the tragedy of religion is not just that it's poison. And it's not that it kills. It's that one drop of it is toxic enough to keep us in bondage for the rest of our lives. It's a poison that's found everywhere. It's rampant in our community, in our culture. It's rampant in churches, and it's not only toxic to those who who ingest it, who get infected with it, it poisons people we are called to reach. And the sad reality is that there are people today who have religion, but don't know Jesus. Now, right off the bat, I know I've confused some of you. I mean, some of you are looking at me like a fish riding a bicycle. And you're <laughs> And you're some of you are thinking, but Scott, I, I thought Christianity was a religion. Well, it's like this. There are some very important fundamental differences between Christianity and religion. See, religion is all about the rules. Religion's all about the procedures. Follow the procedures, keep the rules diligently enough, and you're in the clear. Disobey. Don't don't follow the rules. Don't follow the procedures. And you're in major trouble. And folks, that's not the essence of what the Christian faith is all about. Other people think that Christianity is about rituals and, and sacraments and ceremonies. And if we do them faithfully, then we're good. We're in. But if we don't do them, we neglect them, then we're out. But that's not where the Bible puts the emphasis. And, and yeah, it's true that Christians do some things. I mean, uh, like that, you know, baptism is kind of like that. Uh, Communion is kind of, sort of 
like a sacrament or a ritual or a ceremony, but, but, the, but that's not the essence of the Christian faith. And then other people think that Christianity is about doctrine. It's about what is taught. It's about the teaching. It's about what we believe and teach on this subject or that topic. And doctrine is important, but again, the teachings, the theological positions, the doctrine is not the essence of the Christian faith. Here's the core of the core. And here's what separates Christianity from every religion on the face of the earth. It's not a rule book to follow. It's not a ritual to observe. It's not a doctrine to believe. Christianity is a personal relationship with a living God made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's what Christianity is all about. Fundamentally, Christianity is a relationship, an everyday loving friendship with Almighty God. That's what it's about. But I have long been convinced that that's not widely known or understood. There's just too much evidence to the contrary. I don't think a lot of people truly understand that that is what Christianity is all about. And in fact, an awful lot of Jesus' ministry was about clearing up confusion about that very thing. That's what I want us to do today. You remember back in high school or maybe college, you took a biology class? And you got to look at those specimens that had been preserved in formaldehyde. Sometimes it was frogs or snakes or little piglets. And the funny thing was, they, they, they looked alive, right? That's why they used formaldehyde, because it allows you to, to preserve things. Um, uh, and, and you can put a lifeless organism in it and keep it looking like it's alive for a long time. And the truth is, there are some formaldehyde Christians people who call themselves Christians, who have religion, who have religion down pat, but don't have a personal relationship. Outwardly, they look like they're alive, but there's no life in them. Jesus talked to some people that fit that exact description in Luke chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, turn over there to the Gospel of Luke, third book of, the, uh, of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. In chapter 11, Jesus is going to confront a group of people who appear alive, but the truth is they were dead. And and here's the shocker. If you stop somebody on the street and said, who is the most devout religious person you know? In fact, as a people group, who are the most devout religious people you know? They would point to the very group that Jesus confronts in the passage of Scripture that we're we're going to look at. They would say, there they are. There are the most devout people I know. They were known as the Pharisees. And and they practiced their religion in such a way that they they made life miserable for everyone around them. You know any Christians like that? I do. I was one. See, I'm... Some of you don't know this. I'm a recovering legalist. I am. I, I didn't start learning about grace until about 15 years ago. I spent the better part of my life without grace, without knowing about it, without receiving it, 
knowingly, and without giving it. So I was one of those people. There's this common misconception about Jesus that he was this meek and mild person. That, that, that he was this, this gentle guy um, who was so nice and so sweet, he would never even swat a fly. You know, Jesus wouldn't slap a mosquito, he just let him eat. Right? And, and, and you know what? He would never, ever say anything or do anything that would offend anyone or upset anyone or make anyone angry, right? <laughs> Wrong. That's Jesus said and did things that infuriated people, religious people. See, the, the irreligious, the people who weren't invested in religion, they flocked to him. Religious people hated him. And I'm going to tell you, based on 15 years of experience, the farther you journey away from religion and into grace, the more people are going to, they may not hate you, but they'll sure question your salvation. Jesus made people so angry, they looked for ways to trap him. They looked for ways to, to trip him up in what he said. They looked for some reason, some cause to, uh, to have him arrested, to put a stop to him in his ministry. And, and eventually, he made them so angry that they crucified him. Now, this message may, um, may be offensive to some. It's not my intention. It may upset some people. Again, that's not my intention. I, I'm putting an awful lot of, of weight on the hope that the majority of you understand that love compels me to tell you the truth. And I made a promise to my boss that I would always do that. So what I want us to do today, we're going to take a look, kind of walk through a portion of Luke chapter 11 here. And I want us to be looking for some signs. Take a look at Jesus' confrontation with religious people and let's identify some signs that we might need to break free from religion. Okay, here's the first one. We might need to break free from religion if outward appearance is more important than inner purity. Look at verse 37 there in, in Luke chapter 12. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed by Jesus' mighty miracles. He doesn't say that. His host was amazed at the wonderful teaching about the kingdom of God that Jesus was doing. doesn't say that either, does it? His host was amazed that Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, was seated in his dining room. Doesn't say that either. It says his host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Now, I know it's Mother's Day and we got moms here. Don't trip over the fact that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Okay. I mean, I'm sure if Mary had been there, she would have said, Jesus, 
don't you die. get up and go wash your hands. <laughs> but the truth is, the Jewish practice of washing hands before a meal had nothing to do with cleanliness. It was about ceremony. It, it was, a, it was a, a ritual that they went through to show how holy they were, how devout they were, how religious they were. And so when Jesus refused to go along with this religious practice, to play their little religious game, it says his host was shocked. Now, we're not told that he said anything, but it must have registered on his face. It must have been visible. I mean, his shock must have been visible. And besides that, Jesus knew what he was thinking. And so Jesus says to him, you're so obsessed with your religious ritual. Let me tell you what that's like. It's about washing the outside of the cup, leaving the inside dirty. It's about washing the bottom of the plate, leaving the top crusted over with, with, with old food. That, that's what it's like. You're, you're cleaning things that don't matter, and you're not giving attention to the inner things. That's where the rot, that's where the corruption is. One sign that we might be religious is that we feel like what we do makes us better than other people, more pleasing to God, and therefore closer to God. That's where the expression holier than thou comes from. And you know what? You go, go read. And this is not a new thing. In, in Isaiah 65, God tells the prophet, that kind of attitude is like a stench in my nostrils. It's like a harsh odor that never goes away. And a telltale sign of religion is that it is extremely concerned, overly concerned with how things look on the outside. Well, I just wish he'd tuck his shirt in. You think he owns any pants that ain't blue jeans? I've never seen him in one. Well, I went to a wedding one time and he had a suit on. No, he didn't. Yeah. That's why I love 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. Hey, turn to your neighbor and say, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. Do it. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the hearts. Well, yeah, ought to look your best for God. And how about you clean up your black heart? It's easy to clean up a little bit and to look good and to smell good and come to church and just smile. But our inner purity, our character, is who we are when no one's looking at us. And truth is, someone's always looking. Someone is always looking. Who we are and how we behave when we're not here, that's what reveals our character. Our character is revealed in what we did last night or Friday night 
or last week at work. Our character is revealed in what we post on Facebook. <gasps> and I'm telling you, I, this is, this is, I'm going to be as blunt and as honest as I can be. Do you expect any less? I hope not. I don't think God cares one bit what we wear to church. I don't. You think I'd look like this if I did? I don't think he cares one bit. I don't think he's concerned about whether we look nice and clean up real good for everybody on Sunday. He's more concerned about what's in our heart. Guess what? I can't see your heart. And you can't see mine. And I'll tell you, that's a good thing a lot of the time. Isn't it? But God can. And Jesus says, you can dress up and, and you can clean up on the outside all you want. But if your heart's not right, then your external efforts and your holier-than-thou attitude is just a stink that God cannot get out of his nose. If our relationship with God is not changing us, are changing our character day by day from the inside out, then it just might be we don't have the relationship with him we think we have, that we have more religion than we do relationship. Here's the second one. We might need to break free from religion if rituals are more important than a relationship with God. Look at verse 42. There's this whole series of, in some Bibles, they, they, they call them the woes. Jesus starts every statement with a woe. The New Living Translation says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? In other words, there's going to come a day when you are going to realize what you should have done. When you're going to be sorry for what you did. What sorrow awaits you? Verse 42. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Almost thought I was in Alabama and said herb gardens. But you ignore justice and the love of God. The Pharisees were so conscientious in their religious observances that when they, when they picked herbs out of their garden, they divided them up and gave 10% to the, to the storehouse for the care of the priests. Isn't that something? To be that meticulous, that concerned about getting that right. But the truth is they didn't care about people being treated right, about people being taken care of, about people being treated fairly or justly. They didn't demonstrate God's love. And folks, it is so easy to get wrapped up in performing religious acts and forget the reason behind the act. The truth is the underlying foundation of all religion is performance. And I don't care whether we're talking about some pagan tribe in a foreign land dancing around the campfire to appease the fire God or some Christian trying to do all the things good Christians are supposed to do. Performance underlies all religion. And the danger is that anything can become a performance. Anything can become a ritual performance. Even some things that are good. Giving can become a, a ritual if we give without a heart of joy and without a, a heart of thankfulness to God. Reading the Bible can be a ritual if we do it because we, we think we have to or we think God's going to let something bad happen to us if we don't do it. Oh, well, I know why I had that fender bender. I missed my quiet time four days this week. Do you see how crazy we sound 
Is it any wonder that people in this world want to get as far away from Christians as they possibly can? What's wrong with that? They flocked to Jesus. They run from us. Anything can become a ritual. Prayer can become a ritual. If we're just repeating mindless phrases, we don't even know what they mean. We don't even know why we say them. We say them because we heard somebody say them in a prayer and we thought, oh, that sounds cool. I'll use that next time I pray. Don't have a clue what it means. We had a... Yes, hello? Oh, you weren't the only one grabbing for a phone, Peggy. Don't worry about it. I grew up in church with a, a really a wonderful guy. But I'm going to tell you, every kid, at least every boy, the girls generally wouldn't do things like this, but every boy in that church could recite his prayers word for word. And we would. We all sat on the back row. And whenever, I don't want to say this man's name, he's been with the Lord a long time, but there's still people who might hear this who would know him. Um, whenever he would stand up to pray, We'd pray right along with him under our breath in the back row. <laughs> now, that was rude and bad of us to do that. We should never have done that. <laughs> but even prayer can become a routine, a performance routine. You know, get in the bed. Oh, I forgot to pray. Um, uh, you know, Lord bless, uh, bless all the pygmies overseas and, um, um, you know, uh, help us to... Uh, uh, lead God and direct us, and um, now I'll lay me down to sleep. Amen. Whew, got that in. God couldn't care less about our religious rituals. What God cares about is life. And there's only one thing he's interested in, and that is a love relationship with you and me. He couldn't care less. It's a relationship not based on what we do. It's a relationship based on who we are and whose we are. We are his children. Let's go on. Number three. They might need to break free of religion. If being seen by others is more important than serving God. Here's how Jesus addressed it with those Pharisees. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees. How sorry you're going to be one of these days. For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogue and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplace. In the synagogue, the front seats were reserved for the most respected Pharisees. And there were seats that sat facing the congregation. It would be kind of like if we had chairs up here and I invited some of you that, that you know, we determined were the most holy and the most devout to come and sit here each week. Maybe there are churches that do that. I don't know. And then out on the street, the most religious of the Pharisees had hype men. They had, they had hype men. Went in front of them, calling out their names, calling out their position calling out the good things that they had done and the common rabble on the street were supposed to pay them homage. We're supposed to turn and recognize them for being this great religious person. I want to tell you something. There are people all over this country who went to church today just to see and be seen. It's a fact. Uh, to make sure their name was in the bulletin for whatever thing it was they did. Okay? To, uh, to folks who will remind you at the drop of a hat how long they've been a member of the church or, or how much they've done for the church or what particular piece of the church their family paid for. 
Well, guess what? When they do that, they got everything they're going to get for the good they've done. That's what Jesus said. He had something very interesting to say to those people in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He said, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogue and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they've received all the reward they will ever get. I hope human applause is enough for some of us because that's all some of us are going to get. If we serve others just so people will see how serving and giving and good we are, well, they might applaud us. They might be impressed. But God is not, and we've gotten everything we're going to get. Here's number four. Might need to break free of religion if rules are more important than love. Verse 46. Jesus just just keeps it up. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law. For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. Oftentimes the Pharisees were referred to as lawyers or experts in the law. It didn't have anything to do with courts or the justice system. It was all about interpreting the Old Testament law. It was all about officially ruling on what could and could not be done. And through the years they had added hundreds and hundreds of laws to the written Old Testament law. And good Jews were expected to obey every one of them. And folks, that's what religion always does. It takes our our amazing, beautiful faith and it whittles it down to a list of rules and regulations. It takes the Christian life, which should be the, the most the richest, most enriching relationship that exists and makes it about a list of thou shalt not. It's a hijacked attempt. It's a hostile takeover. It's, It's our human effort to legislate holiness and take over the role of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. And it's everywhere. There there are Christians and churches who have rules for everything. What you can wear. How you can keep your hair. Rules about earrings and tattoos and body piercings. Rules about playing cards or dancing or going to the movies. Rules about listening to music or wearing a costume on Halloween that's not an angel or a Bible character or telling your kids about Santa Claus. Man, the list just goes on. I could go on and on and on. I could point to every one of us in here and we could relate a different rule related to some church or some Christian that we know. And folks, what it does is burden people down with things that aren't found anywhere in the Scripture. 
It's binding people with our interpretation of Scripture. It's putting our preferences on somebody else. Again, it's not a new thing. It's not a recent phenomenon. Go back again to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29. And the Lord says this to the prophet. These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. If, if you're expecting me to make a bunch of New Hope rules, then save us both some aggravation and stop. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If there is a clear New Covenant statement on something, then fine, that's what we do. No questions asked. But I'm not going to make rules where God has not. And I'm not going to let anybody else do it either. There is something more important than rules. Love. Love. Religious people always turn out to be the most unloving people I've ever been around. Legalism makes you mean. It makes you cold and harsh. Jesus said to those Jewish people who had learned all that Old Testament law, who, had, who read about all the interpretations that the Pharisees had made down through the years, you know what he said to them? He said, all of that law that you learned... All of those those rules that you learned to follow, all those rules that you studied and memorized and grew up with and and had to conform to, I want to tell you something, Jesus said, it can all be boiled down to two things. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Hey, if your rules are not moving you in that direction, not moving you toward more love for God and more love for other people, then you're using the wrong rule book. You're going down the wrong path. Well, here's the last one. And aren't you glad? Number five. We might have to, <laughs> might have to break free of religion if reliving the past is more important than recognizing God's present activity. Verses 47 and 48. What sorrow awaits you. How sorry you're going to be one of these days. For you build monuments to the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. In fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. In other words, you live just like they did. Jesus is essentially telling them, you're opposing me for the same reason your forefathers opposed those prophets in that day. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime. By building the monuments. (laughs) The Pharisees' forefathers had rejected and killed, murdered Old Testament prophets. Now they're building monuments to commemorate the, the memory. They wanted to keep living in the past. Religion is always looking back. 
Always looking backwards. There's always a good old days that we wish we could get back to. You ever, you never know any used to be Christians? Oh, I, they haven't been to church in years, and they'll say things like, "Oh, I used to be active in that church. Oh, I used to be a helper in children's ministry. I, I used to be a small group leader." Because dead religion is always looking in the rearview mirror. It's always looking back to the good old days. In every church, there are people who don't like change. It's just true. In fact, just as a rule of thumb, anything you change is going to upset about 20% of the people. Fact of life. You know, I had a friend who was, he, he said this years ago, never forgotten it. He said, if, if in your church, when the ushers take up the offering, of course, we, we do it a little differently here, but... If you turned them around and had them walk backwards down the aisle after they collected the offering, and you had them do that three Sundays in a row, and then on the fourth Sunday you said, no, turn around, let's go back, do it like we normally did it. There are people who will quit your church because things are just changing too much around here. (laughs) I liked it when they walked back. Why can't they walk backwards? What was wrong with that? Nobody asked me if we could turn them around and walk them the other way. There are folks who want things to be like they were a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Listen carefully. Listen carefully, please. Living things always change. Change is one of the signs of life. Thank you. That one person that clapped. Yes. No, stop. We appreciate our past. We do. But we got to look for what God's doing right now. We love our past, but we can't live there. we got to live here and now. The last, the last seven words of a dying church are, we've never done it that way before. Right? Traditions, history are wonderful, except when they become sacred limitations that get in the way of us continuing to grow the kingdom here And now, we've changed some things. We're going to change some more. And it's not because we don't like you. It's just because we want to be in love with the idea of reaching more and more people for Jesus. And we will change anything. We will do anything short of sin to reach people for Jesus Christ. That's where you should have clapped. But don't. Don't. Jesus issues a a final warning, a chilling warning in verse 52, if you skip down a couple verses. He says, what sorrow awaits you, experts in the law, in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. Hey, what's the key to knowledge? Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is saying, your religion is keeping you from me. Your religion is keeping you from from the kingdom message that God has sent me to proclaim. It's keeping you out of the kingdom. And not only are you being kept away, but now you're trying to take me and the kingdom away from the people that we were sent to, all because of your religion. And folks, I've never met a religious person who would not say that Jesus is the goal. 
But the truth is, religion has made them end up somewhere very different. They may say, religious people may say that Jesus is the goal, but they always end up somewhere else. So I want to wrap this up this morning with a, with a personal question. How is your relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask you about your knowledge of Him. I didn't ask you about your activity for Him. I'm asking how is your relationship with Him? That's the key. That relationship, that's what Jesus was focused on in Revelation chapter 2. When he says this to the Ephesian church, this is the risen Christ speaking to his church on the earth. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Folks, this was an exceptional church. They were doctrinally sound. They were dealing with sin when it came up. They were faithfully working hard. They were an exceptional church, but they had a a potentially fatal relationship problem. It's in verse 4. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. See, religion always takes you somewhere other than where you want to go. We start out being religious because we want to get to Jesus, and we end up somewhere else. And Jesus says, you don't love me like you did. You don't love each other like you did. Jesus says, all your service is great, but something's missing. Where is the relationship that you and I had in the very beginning? The difference between religion and relationship comes down to one word. Intimacy. They had drifted away from the intimacy of their love for Jesus. And Jesus says, I I appreciate all of your hard work and perseverance. I see that. I recognize it. I appreciate that you're enduring difficult circumstances, that you're bearing up under pressure. But what saddens me is that in the middle of all that, you've forgotten that I care more about the servant than I do the service. That I care about you and not what you can do. You've drifted into ritual without relationship. But here, and here's the, here's the great news. Jesus says, I want you back. Look at verse 5. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do what you did at first. Do the things you did at first. Coming back to Jesus as our first love involves three things. He says, look, some translations say remember. I actually like that. Remember. Remember the passion of that day, those days when you first began your walk with Jesus. Remember how excited you were. Remember how people couldn't shut you up from talking about the Lord. Nobody could keep you away from your Bible. 
You, you prayed. If you took an aspirin, you prayed. Lord, now bless this aspirin to the uh, healing of my headache in Jesus' name. Right? I mean, isn't that the case? Jesus is saying, look back at that. Recapture that passion. And then he says, turn back to me. Hey, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. We have. But it does not matter how many steps you think you may have taken away from Jesus. It only takes one step to get back. Just one. Jesus says, turn. I'm waiting. Come back. And that opens the door to the third step. Return to the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus. Just the, just the simple basics. You know, that time when reading God's Word was a joy and not a chore. When, when prayer was that intimate communication, when life was about fellowship with Him and with His people. In, a, in one of our worship songs this morning, there was a quote from Galatians chapter 5, which I talked about a couple weeks ago. It says, it was for freedom that Jesus set us free. He set us free so we could be free. Not so we could go to work for him. Not so, we that, so that we could go to school to study him. He set us free so we could be free. Freedom. Jesus says the truth will make you free. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is the truth. The truth that breaks us free. Breaks us free from our past. Breaks us free from addiction. Breaks us free from cold, dead religion. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.